So, Father, we ask you to bless us as we open your word this morning. We are excited by what we have experienced. But, Lord, we need you now to speak to us. Every one of us comes, Father. We're aware with our own unique individual burdens, our concerns, those things which weigh us down, Lord. We pray by your Holy Spirit, you will take the dynamic of your word and you will apply it to each of our lives. And Father, that we might be receptive to what it is you're trying to minister to us this morning. Now we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in the book of Hebrews. We're we're entitling the entire study, Timeless Certainties for Uncertain Times. We're in a little segment of that, chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 3 and 4 hang together. And they hang together with what I have titled a soul-searching triad. We'll have three different messages which call us to do some soul-searching, if you will. Now, to understand chapters 3 and 4, we need to recognize that there's really three elements that are there. And I've got to lay them out this morning. It's one of the primary things that I want to do. The three elements are, first of all, the Hebrews who received the letter. There was somebody who received this letter, read it for the first time. There's that element of what we're dealing with. The second element of what we're dealing with in in chapters 3 and 4 is a quotation that the writer to the book of Hebrews used from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. And everything that he discusses in chapters 3 and 4 revolve around that quotation from Psalm 95. But there's a third element because the way he discusses the quotation of Psalm 95 takes us back to a particular event back in the book of Numbers. And so there's a lot going on here. And this morning I'm going to try as best as I can to lay this out for us. And I'd like to begin, first of all, just by reading the passage, Hebrews chapter 3. We've touched on some of these verses, but I want to see them in their continuity. Therefore, beginning in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So here's this last section is an analysis of the quote that he gave from Psalm 95. And for those of you, again, who like to fill in your notes, there's two words that I want to give you. Israel's rebellion, we're going to deal with that in verses, in, in, uh, verses 16 to 19. Israel's rebellion is our challenge to reflection. And that's ultimately where we're going to go with this particular text as we come back to this concept of Reflection, but if you will notice, 
I'm dealing with it backwards, and that is intentional. I think it lays out a little better for our purposes if we first deal with Israel's rebellion. And I don't know, for some of you, I I do know this will be somewhat repetitive. You've seen this before. But there's going to be a good number of us who are here today have no idea what Psalm 95 is talking about, and because the analysis that follows in chapters 3 and 4 are so closely tied into this, at least once we have to put it in front of ourselves. So as we reference Israel's rebellion, and that is, you see, in verse 16 of Hebrews 3, for who, having heard, rebelled, let's see what it is talking about. And that takes us all the way back to Numbers 13. Now you can take your eyes off the screen. Because if we try and follow it like that, it just won't work. So I'm going to just give, do my best to give you a little overview of what took place in Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. And then I'm going to pick it up a little later. These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea the son of Nun, Joshua. So first guy, we have this guy by the name of Joshua who's part of that. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land in Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. As it turns out, he, the writer goes on to describe how the grapes, the cluster of grapes they brought back was so big, it took two men to carry it on a pole between them. This land was giving forth great bounty. It was an abundant land. And we, I, we further read, they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So they spent 40 days checking out the land, these 12 spies. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, this huge cluster of grapes. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They're saying it had great abundance in the land. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. So now we got Caleb and Joshua both singled out. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from Uh, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. There's no way we can take this land because there's giants there. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And the people then went on to complain against Moses and against Aaron and say, you basically have brought us out here just to kill us. 
And we dropped down a little further. The congregation said to stone them with stones. That is Joshua and Caleb. We're just going to get those guys because they've been nothing but trouble. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. And then God begins to speak. And he's angry with the people of Israel to the point that he is ready to judge them on the spot. And Moses says, hang on, if you do that, the Egyptians will think you couldn't give them the victory. That's why you killed them. So God tells Moses what he would do. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me uh, see it. But my servant Caleb, because he was a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. So that is what is referred to in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, as the rebellion. Uh, can we pull up that one map just to give us an overview here? So here's what, t- what has taken place in this, in this little account. The Israelites came, actually they left from about here. This is Egypt over here in northern Africa. They left from about right over here, and God delivered them through Moses. And you will recall, he made himself known in magnificent and great ways through the plagues and ultimately through the uh, taking of the firstborn of Pharaoh himself, who they considered to be a god. So there's one place where he says, all the stuff I did in Egypt... And you, have, you are just ignoring that. Then, when they came out, their ultimate goal, here's the land that God's going to be giving. Right down here to the point of, of that uh, sea, right here, or to the Gulf of Aqaba, right there. Okay, but rather than bring them out here and straight up, the text clearly tells us that there were Philistines along here who were an armored camp, and that would have been frightening to the people because they've been just slaves. They are not an army at this point. And so God brings them down this way, and right here is Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God does some more amazing things. Oh, and I missed in all of this, when they crossed the Red Sea, of course, uh, God defeated the army of Pharaoh. And the text says very clearly, after after the waters closed up on the army of Pharaoh, they're all got through on dry ground because God parted the waters for them. The sea closes up, and the text says very clearly, and the people of Israel saw what God had done. They could see the chariots, the horses, the dead bodies that God had judged there on the shore that never quite caught up to them. So that was another amazing place where God revealed himself. He brings them this way to keep them away from the Philistines, meets with them here. Again, shows himself in magnificent ways while he is there. Uh, His presence is known on the mountain. They're told, don't even touch the mountain. You will die if you touch the mountain because the presence of God is in that cloud that's on the top of the mountain. And only Moses is allowed to go up. Moses brings back for them the the pattern for the uh, tabernacle which they then are going to build and now carry with them. So we've been out here for a little bit now, approaching a couple years, and I, I do it this way. I draw a line right here. And right about here, God says, because they're at the southern, the southwest border of where they're going to be, right? God says, now I want you to take one spy from each tribe, send them into the land up from the south, and find out what it's like. 
And that's the spies account that we have here. And they come back and it's like, man, the land is absolutely incredible. And God told him in, in giving them, in, in telling him this instruction, he said, the land which I am giving them. He made it clear that this land is theirs to come. And I want you to go sort it out, this land which I am giving them. He's already promised the land to them. And as we read in the account, 10 came back, and there's a kid's story, a song about this. 10 came back and said, we were grasshoppers in their sight. These people, there's no way we can defeat them. We're in a world of hurt. And Caleb and Joshua said, yes, we can, because we have God who has promised to give it to us. And look what God has done. He did it in Egypt. He did it in the crossing of the Red Sea. He did it down at the mountain. There's other places where God in the wilderness, he's been revealing himself to us. If God says he's given us the land, we can do this, people. Let's go forth. And they're like, no, we can't do this. They're ready to stone the leaders that are there. And God speaks up. And he says to them, those who are of a spirit to want to turn back will not enter the land. They're not going to get there. And uh, what winds up happening is for 40 years now, they will wander in the wilderness, led by God, for 40 years, until everybody who was 20 years old and up has died off. It takes 40 years for that to happen. God says, you're not going to enter my rest. You're not going to see the land because you refused to obey me. There's two of those 20 years old and up who do make it, Joshua and Caleb. And ultimately, Joshua will lead them into the land. Uh, at some point, he's going to come in from over here, and he's going to lead them right into the land. And we sing the song, Joshua fought the battle at Jericho, right? Right there, 40 years later. But there was this rebellion. They are ready to kill the people. God has raised up to lead them into the land, and they say, no, uh, we're just going to die there. So that's the historical background to everything that we're going to be looking at in, these, in this soul-searching triad. We have to see it at least once, okay? So they rebelled, and in their rebellion, God said, not going into the land. So if we can go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, the writer to the Hebrews is just describing Israel's rebellion. He says, for who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses... Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness, those who were not going to be allowed to enter? They're just going to wander until they die. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? That they wouldn't go in. He promised to give them the land. They refused to go in. They decided the, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, descendants of Anak, the Giants in the land were more than they could handle. Now look, God has already demonstrated himself repeatedly. He can kill some little giants. No big deal. And then the writer of the Hebrews says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That's his concluding statement in this particular section. That's Israel's rebellion. What I'd like you to notice in verse 19, so we see the word for see... We see that they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. The word means to look at, to see, and in some contexts, and we're going to see that, is more than just to see, just to watch. It means to look carefully and think about what you're seeing. And it is that very same word now, as we understand this rebellion that verses 16 to 19 are speaking about, it's the very same word in verse 12. We back up now. Now we want to see what our challenge is. Beware, brethren. See, we see 
that they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. Beware, it means watch out. See, exact same word. Okay? Look at this and think about this. Think about what has taken place among the people of Israel when they rebelled and they were not allowed to enter into God's promises. And notice what he says. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of us, any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He says, just like it happened with Israel out there in the wilderness, that they allowed an evil heart of unbelief to overtake them, the same thing can happen to us, is that we turn away from the promises and the goodness and the things of God. And he says, be careful that that does not happen. Pay attention. That's what I'm referring to as a soul-searching triad. This is the first exhortation. Beware that what happened to Israel doesn't happen to you. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. I find that interesting. There'll be another place that we're going to come across in, in the book of Hebrews where it reminds us that our walk with the Lord, our commitment to Jesus Christ, our ability to follow after God, very often we need the encouragement of other brothers and sisters around us. We need the encouragement because every one of us is confronted from time to time with these things that would, later the phrase will be the sin that so easily besets us, things where we begin to question, why am I making this sacrifice to live for the kingdom? Why am I going through all this hard stuff? Why am I going through this labor? There may very well be some on the Vienna team this summer who are going to be in the middle of the week and go, now why did I sign up for this again? Somebody better come alongside of me and tell me. (laughs) And we need one another to reorient our thinking to say, hey, let's remember the God whom we serve. Let's remember he has our best interests at heart. Let's remember he knows the beginning from the end. And so together we're going to walk through this difficult season. And so we are called to exhort one another to that. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And isn't that the reality of sin? It always presents itself as something good. It always presents itself as something beneficial. It is always presented to us that if you'll just walk in rebellion to God, if you will just go your own way, if you will just do like the people of Israel did and uh, just say, God, I've had enough of this thing. It's getting just a little too hard not as fun as I thought it was going to be when I first, you know, responded to the gospel and began to want to grow in this stuff. Because the deceitfulness of sin is at work. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, this is the first soul-searching triad is to beware. Pay attention to what's going on in your life. And is the deceitfulness of sin somehow creeping in in such a way that it's just separating you from the things of God like it happened in Israel? Last spring, there was a relative of here, of um, Mark and Leanne's, and I think it was your niece, you said, right? Your niece was here. And uh, she, had, she had with her a guy by the name of Brian. And Brian had been here once before. And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't recall meeting Brian before. I'll never forget meeting Brian this time. 
Brian is an African-American brother who we just had sweet fellowship right back there by the sound booth afterwards. He said what I believe is one of the most insightful things I have ever heard. Put succinctly, put sweetly, and put in such a way that I have, I, I called him up. I don't know if you remember that, Mark, or, <laughs> Susan. I called him up at your house and said, can I use that? Because I didn't know if it was something. He's like, no, that's my thing, man. You've got to come up with your own. But here's what he said. He was just describing his own journey through life. And then he threw this out. He said, And then when I realized that sin is a trick for my own demise, then he began to turn his life around. Sin is a trick for my own demise. That says so much. Sin in its deceitfulness will will present itself as something where it'll always be uplifting, it'll always be good, things will always be better when we walk in rebellion to God and then we find out somehow it all comes crashing in because we bought into this thing. Sin is a trick for my own demise and I didn't see the trick. Those who are in my Sunday school class I think will attest to this, that I've said to them, if this is the only thing you get out of this class, always remember this one. Sin is a trick for my own demise. It will deceive us and then lead us away from the things of God into destruction every single time. And this is the concern for the writer to the Hebrews Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And and this is what the writer to Hebrews is trying to do. He's trying to move us along, to push us through, to make sure that, that our expression of faith in Jesus Christ was not some seasonal thing in our lives. It was not something that was interesting at the time, and then I went on to other things, more intriguing, more fun. He's like, no, you need to, when you come to this place and you begin to understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, you need to push through all the way to the end and not allow sin is a trick for your own demise to sidetrack you, turn you away from the things of the Lord. And so this writer, writing to us, right? Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you. That's the reader, right? That's me right now as I'm reading it. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. He's cautioning us. And he's challenging us through the example of Israel's rebellion to serious reflection. Serious reflection that we will go through to the fullness of what God has for us. And we will not get sidetracked. We sang a great song earlier. This song was so good. Randy had to come to the back because I know he said, I'm not going to be able to stand still for this song if I stay right here. I'm going to be a distraction to people. So he came to the back and he's back there and he's driving around and we're having a good time. It's like, oh, Randy, this is the song, all right? My Lighthouse. And we began clapping. We were singing incredible truth there, friends. Incredible truth. You will lead us through. Safe to shore. And that 
is true as much for us today as it was for those Israelites for whom God said, send out 12 spies. I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you this land. Send out 12 spies. They came back and said, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. But the truth remains the same for us today. God will lead us safe to shore. I'm not saying that there isn't some stormy times, right? We've all been through them and we will be through them again. That's the point. We all go through stormy times. And the point is we must not allow the stormy times to, uh, uh, for that to be the open door for sin to deceive us and trick us into our own demise. That's the point he's trying to make. Because you will see as we move through the book, these people are under some duress. But the writer of Hebrews says, hang on, hang on, hang on. Get around some other brothers and sisters. You hang on together and you go to the end. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this challenge, Lord, for this word that reminds us that it's, it's easy to let things sidetrack us from following you to the very end of the course in the journey you have designed for us. And the evil one wants to trip us up. Lord, sin is a trick for our own demise, and too often I have walked in it, as well as everyone else here who can attest. We felt the self-destruction of the paths we took. Lord, teach us to follow you, encourage us to seriously consider are we messing with sin in some area that's going to sidetrack us from you? Encourage us, Lord. Teach us. Show us how to minister to one another that collectively we can help each other move towards completeness in Jesus Christ. And we will give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.